there's this notion that we're just arguing about how we want to go about it. I want to do it this way. We want to do it this way. Whenever you hear the construction, we all agree on the problem. We're just arguing about the solution. You have to make sure that you correct that person. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contributes tab at bestofleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, The Trump Cast, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, The Bradcast, The Majority Report, A Progressive Faith Sermon from Reverend Roger Ray, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. Republicans in Washington have moved one step closer to repealing Obamacare. On Thursday, the House narrowly approved legislation that would result in tens of millions of people losing health insurance while providing a massive tax break to the rich. The ayes are 217, the nays are 213. The bill is passed, and without objection, the motion to reconsider is laid upon the table. However, the future of the bill remains in doubt as Republican senators have vowed to write their own health care bill instead of taking up the House bill. Shortly after the vote, President Trump hosted Republican lawmakers at the White House Rose Garden for a celebration. This is a great plan. I actually think it will get even better. And this is, make no mistake, this is a repeal and a replace of Obamacare. Make no mistake about it. No President mistake. Trump praised the bill. Most major medical organizations and the AARP warned the bill will cause serious harm to patients and drive up the cost of health care. The Congressional Budget Office was not given enough time to score the legislation, meaning the House voted on the bill without knowing its projected impact. The CBO projected 24 million people would lose health insurance under an earlier version of the Republican bill. The bill was opposed by almost every sector in the health care industry, including hospitals, doctors, health insurers and consumer groups. Critics of the bill faulted numerous provisions. Under the new bill, health insurance companies would be allowed to charge customers with pre-existing conditions as much as they want. The list of pre-existing conditions include rape, sexual assault, postpartum depression, cesarean sections, and surviving domestic violence. It would roll back the expansion of Medicaid and cut Medicaid by, oh, $880 billion over 10 years. The bill also put it's a cap on federal spending per person, including seniors and children, under Medicaid. The bill also blocks Medicaid funds going to reimburse Planned Parenthood for providing, for providing preventive care to women. Get into the substance a, a little more. I mean, talking about the, the pre-existing conditions as one very important point in the bill. How does that affect people? How, if some version of this or something close to it passed the Senate and actually became law, what would it mean for people who have pre-existing conditions? Both people who get insurance now through employers, the way I do, the way I suspect you do, uh, and people who are in some 
part of the public system, whether on Medicaid or buying insurance through the exchanges. Yeah, so it's incredibly complex <laughs> the way that they're going to they they that it happens. So under the bill, a state could opt out of the pre-existing protection rules. And they do by telling the federal government that they have an alternative plan that's going to make sure that people are covered for it or that that premiums will go down. Um, those are very low bars to meet because it didn't. Um, and so basically, if a state requests to be relieved of the requirements for pre-existing condition protections for people or maintaining minimum benefit standards like having to cover maternity and mental health, they could opt out of it. So why would a state then propose that they want to remove those protections? And that has to do with the rest of the bill. So the rest of the bill, the one that was withdrawn a month ago, replaced the individual mandate that you had to buy insurance with the idea that you'd get a penalty of a 30% premium surcharge if you had a two-month gap in your insurance coverage. So in a sense, you pay more for insurance if you don't have insurance. The result of that is that healthy people will be the ones who won't buy insurance. And then when you really need it, you will go and try to find insurance. And that will lead the people in the exchanges and in the private market to be sicker and sicker population. So the states, in order to keep the premiums under control, at, at some point will start to try to, uh, will feel a ton of pressure to then loosen all of the insurance standards because you're not getting enough healthy people to sign up. And that's when minimum benefit standards and protections for people who have health care issues um, will, would be uh, the kinds of things they'll feel the pressure to look for a waiver from. So that's where, uh, that's where people, you know, a friend of mine who has just been diagnosed with cancer and like most of the new jobs out there is working in a freelance capacity. She's deathly afraid that this could go away. Yeah, well, I mean, but the, under the under Obamacare, you were s- supposed to be penalized you, because of the individual mandate if you didn't buy insurance. But then if you were diagnosed with cancer, you could still enter the exchange and get insurance. They couldn't discriminate against you. Now, if that happens, what would happen to the same person? I mean, they... Uh, the the game of not buying insurance until you get sick doesn't work anymore under this system theoretically because they can discriminate against your pre-existing condition and you can't assume that you'll get insurance that will cover your condition if you wait till you get sick. That's right. Under the bill, um, before they made these last-minute amendments, they had protected, they said, look, you're still assured that you have pre-existing condition protection. So if you didn't buy insurance, you'd have to pay a 30% surcharge when you signed up if you were waiting until you got sick. And then, and then the other thing they did is they heavily cut the subsidies. So uh, the charges could be, the amount that you're having to lay out could be quite high. And the reason why they said that 24 million people will, will lose insurance is because the costs would turn out to be so substantially high that it, it, it's, it's almost like a, it's, it's like a penalty on the sick uh, for getting coverage. Now you add in this formal also opportunity that the state can opt out of these pre-existing condition protections. Now, if I unexpectedly get diagnosed with a cancer, didn't have insurance, I try to go sign up, they can charge me any amount more, or just exclude you automatically from coverage. 
So 27% of the American population under 65 has a health care condition that automatically excluded them from insurance coverage before Obamacare. So all of those people would be back into a world where private insurance may not, would not even necessarily, wouldn't necessarily even be offered again if a state requested their way out of this. Add in one more thing. If one state decides to ask for the pre-existing condition waiver, and you're in a large business, that business now can offer insurance, can follow the rules of that one state. Under the, under the bill, they made it so anybody who has employer insurance also could get out of the minimum benefit standard. So they could drop maternity health, they could drop mental health coverage and things like that. So a lot of people could potentially end them, find themselves in that position. What they offer as a backup is these high risk pool. Explain how that works a little more, Tool. So, so the, this back door, because in, so you, what you're saying is that in any state, the state that has the, the, uh, the, the most effective lobbyists and the legislators with the least, least integrity, if they can get any state out of 50 to let them off the hook on the pre-existing conditions, it then applies in 50 states? How right. Would that so be? if you get the, the and it, it's, um, it's especially around the minimum benefit standards that they opted you out of that. So if that state with, um, decides to opt for dropping minimum benefit standards, and those are requirements that you have to cover maternity care and mental health and preventive care. If they, if one state opts out of it and you're a large employer, they included an amendment in the law that would allow that employer to use the standards of that lowest common denominator state. And what about a state like yours that had its, its own universal coverage? Yeah. And um, so on the one hand, we have both the Republican and the Democratic Party here vowing that if it disappears on a national level, they will sustain it here. But in order to sustain that here, they would need still the authority federally from Medicaid to to use their Medicaid dollars to cover people more broadly and to maintain kind of these kinds of benefit standards. And the provisions in the act that start start loosening those protections means that that there are ways in which large employers could decide to not follow the Massachusetts rules even though they're employing you here. So what do you think the world would look like for doctors treating patients? I mean, doctors like yourself, not in Massachusetts, but in a state more like a southern state or a western state that isn't going to maintain its own, isn't likely to maintain its own robust protections. Well, so uh, it, it partly depends on what state you're in, because about, you had about a third of the states that were um, conservative, mostly southern states, that did not take the Medicaid funding to expand Medicaid. The result, though, is that if I'm a doctor practicing, let's let's take a few example states. If I'm a doctor practicing in Ohio, John Kasich opted the state into Medicaid, so they got Medicaid coverage that covers everybody who is poor or near poor and ensures them that they have coverage and they can act. And if you're above that income level, you can get coverage on the healthcare exchange. So that's a state, also Kentucky's known like this, where they dropped from 16% uninsured to just 7%. And basically, if you got sick, you would get, um, you, you had access to being signed up for coverage that would assure you that you would get coverage. There's no, there's no um, gap. So, I mean, if you're really poor, you get Medicaid. If you're, if you're, Poor, but not desperately poor. You get that you get the subsidy, and in any case, you can buy insurance through the exchange. That's right, and and you know the the what 
what people complain about is that the average person who is on the exchange has a $2,500 deductible. And when I talk to my friends back home in Ohio, where I'm from, um, you know, their big complaint is that I, I don't have 500 bucks in the bank and I've got a $2,500 deductible. So, um, you know, one friend had a heart attack and he was covered from a devastating $30,000 expense and, you know, had his life saved and wasn't bankrupted by it. But still, you know, um, uh, other folks can have a hard time coming up with that $2,500. The bottom line, though, is if I'm a doctor and think about people I've seen, I'm a cancer surgeon, right? I have not taken care of an uninsured, an uninsured cancer patient in years. And for people in places like Ohio who practice in those kinds of fields, they're seeing and experiencing the same thing. Um, it's a dramatic transformation. I used to take care of about 15% of my patients who were uninsured and we had to figure out how are they going to get their, their chemotherapy uh, follow-up taken care of, how are they going to get their radiation paid for, and things like that. That is what has disappeared. Now, a place like Mississippi didn't take the Medicaid funding. They've actually had an increased number in uninsured. They're over 20% uninsured, and, you know, things are clearly not going to get better there. And the people who are on the exchanges, that's about 7% of the American public are on the exchanges. They're going to increasingly drop out. So you'll only see those numbers rise. Overall, does it look, does it just look like the world we had before Obamacare? Yes. And in some cases, potentially worse. Um, that's for two reasons. Number one is that the, uh, the number of people who have pre-existing conditions is rising. And that's for complicated reasons. 27% of the population, I said, under the age of 65 have a health care condition currently that made them uninsurable before Obamacare. So that's a substantial number of people. And the world has changed in, in, in two ways. Number one is a vast, over 90% of the new job growth has been in non-traditional categories. They are jobs without salaries and benefits. You're freelance workers, temporary workers, contract workers, and those people, you have a larger and larger number of people fall in that category who have to get coverage out on, out on their own. And so you have many more people who are unprotected than were unprotected pre- previous to Obamacare. That world has changed. The second thing is big data. The fact that we have big data now means that the insurers can look at everything from your shopping patterns to your zip code to other kinds of factors that, that, that are beyond just what your health, current healthcare issue is and predict people who are likely to be at high cost. AI is making it so that larger and larger numbers of us, eventually all of us, you are able to predict how much healthcare needs you'll have in the future and for larger chunks of people, you become, you are someone, even before you're not, you have a health issue, you um, become someone that insurers would love to avoid signing you up or would charge you a heck of a lot more. So, you know, the world has changed in ways in which we're all pre-existing conditions waiting to happen and going on to job markets that are uh, less and less likely to have healthcare benefits of any kind, let alone decent healthcare benefits. I watched myself crawling out as I was crawling in. I got up so tight I couldn't unwind. I saw so much. I broke my mind. I just dropped in to see what condition my condition was in.
Now, I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. You know that under Trump care, you could be denied health coverage for pre-existing conditions, right? But did you know that being the victim of sexual assault qualifies as a pre-existing condition? If you've ever had a cesarean section, that's also a pre-existing condition, and so is postpartum depression. So now, being a woman is a pre-existing condition? Motherhood is enough to get you cut off from insurance? It's almost like Trump doesn't care about a certain massive percentage of the population that he doesn't directly relate to. But Kim, I hear you say, what? about when the proven serial liar said these things when i watch some of the news reports which are so unfair and they say we don't cover pre-existing conditions we cover it beautifully Although, i'll tell you who doesn't cover pre-existing conditions obamacare you know why it's dead sorry but those so-called guarantees directly conflict with the recently added macarthur meadows amendment under this amendment states are free to discriminate against women who experience the pre-existing condition of being or having been pregnant suffering from ppd or having been assaulted and or violated by another person. Oh, unless you work for the House Republicans, that is, since they've exempted themselves from these parts of the law. Then empathy and understanding what the point of insurance is magically reemerges. But not understanding of basic human biology, though. They just have ways to try and shut that whole thing down. Seriously though, this bill is bad. If your first reaction to a bill as a politician is to write a clause that exempts you from its dictates, that's a pretty good indicator that it's a hot bag of garbage. The ACA isn't perfect, but refusing to let insurance companies deny coverage due to pre-existing conditions was a good step. Another good step, requiring essential benefit coverage. That means covering the basic stuff any sane person would consider essential elements of quality healthcare, hospitalization, prescription medication, preventive care, which by the way, saves lives and helps prevent sick people from being stuck with financially crippling medical bills and, oh yeah, unnecessary death. Also under the essential benefit umbrella are birth control, pregnancy, and newborn care. It's very, very hard to say this new GOP bill isn't meant to discriminate against any particular group. And if you're not a woman, you don't care about any human women for some reason. Probably not as an extreme reaction of primal misplaced anger and feelings of inadequacy in an ever-evolving socio-political landscapes slipping into the future, away, right through your angrily, impotently clenched fingers like so much dust in the wind. Oh no, certainly not that! You're still getting screwed in this deal! Because pre-existing health conditions should be covered, we are all in fragile flesh bags that will inevitably break down. It's not an if. It's a when. Do you have any of the conditions on this partial list? Then you're out. Under Trump care, we'd see many bad things happen to many, and a couple good things happen to a few. Tens of millions of people will lose health insurance. Tens or hundreds of thousands of people, babies, mothers and fathers, beloved friends and parents, those people will die when they otherwise could have lived. Do you know how crazy it is to realize we have the collective knowledge and ability and power to save lives, but we won't because we've assigned value to those lives and deemed them unworthy of the effort. Remember in the time around Obama was being negotiated where there was such conservative outrage and furor at so-called death panels. Anyone over the age of 74 has to go before what is effectively a death panel. <laughs> They do. Yes, they do. It's in there, folks. You're wrong. Okay, children. All right, children. Where's the Republican fury now? Where's the alleged crusade for the value and protection of human life? Now we have a mostly apolitical comedian making completely reasonable statements like this. 
If your baby is going to die and it doesn't have to, it, it shouldn't matter how much money you make. I think that's something that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else, we all agree on that, right? You would think we could all agree that a baby deserves a fair chance. So then he gets tweeted this by a former Republican congressman who then went on his radio show to say, as paraphrased by the Chicago Tribune, life is all about choices, and if you choose not to have enough money or a job that provides your children with urgently needed care, it's not my problem. It's your sick baby's problem. Good luck with that. Then we have this people who lead good lives, they're healthy, you know, they've done the things to keep their bodies healthy. Uh, and right now, those are the people who've done things the right way that are seeing their costs skyrocketing. What kind of malarkey is that? You don't get rewarded by health when you lead a good, healthy life. Things happen. Diseases come unexpectedly. Stop with your fake morality. Here's the truth of it. While millions of ordinary people get screwed, Donald Trump will make out like a bandit, along with the rich whose interests he represents. This very telling chart from the Tax Policy Center shows who the clear winners are with Trump Care. The rich will get marginally richer. The poor and middle class will suffer immeasurably. Nothing changes. It's the same motive shoveled to us in a different way on a different day. But you know who else is going to lose because of this bill? Republicans who vote for it. Because when everyone finally realizes what horrific damage you did to so many Americans to benefit so few at the top, those Americans are going to remember. And they're still going to remember on the next election day. Also insane is what Republican Representative Raul Labrador from Idaho said. He voted for the repeal of Obamacare and the replacement of it with iteration number two of the American Health Care Act. The day after he voted for the bill, he had a town hall at Lewis Clark State College in Lewiston, Idaho. During a question and answer session, a woman stood up to speak and she criticized the new bill because of the major cuts that it would make to Medicaid, saying this is telling people to die. What did Congressman Labrador say? Nobody dies in the U.S. because they don't have access to health care. You are mandating people on Medicaid except dying. You are making a no, no one wants anybody to die. You know, that, that line is so indefensible. Nobody dies because they don't have access to health care. You can hear the crowd's disbelief there. So number one, Labrador is wrong about no one dying because they don't have access to health and health care. But uh, the number of other countries that have figured out a way to prevent people from dying because they don't have uh, access to health care makes it clear that we could also do that in the United States. Labrador is not the only guy who says stuff like this in a 2007 event in Cleveland, Ohio. George W. Bush said, quote, the immediate goal is to make sure there are more people on private insurance plans. I mean, people have access to health care in America. After all, you just go to the emergency room. We all remember or many of us remember this Mitt Romney interview from 2012. Well, we do provide care for people who don't have insurance. 
people, uh, we, if someone has a heart attack, they don't sit in their apartment and, and die. We, we pick them up in an ambulance and take them to the hospital and give them care. Why all this talk of emergency rooms? Because after this incident, Labrador was asked to defend what he said. And what he claims to have meant by nobody dies from lack of health care is if you go to the emergency room, hospitals have to treat you. OK, and many Republicans have pulled that line out. Breaking news, people going to the emergency room without health insurance is part of the problem we have. That's part of why it makes more sense to make sure everybody is insured so that they can go to primary care and not go to the emergency room for primary care bills, which they will often not pay because they can't afford it, which then are just priced into the premiums that people with health insurance actually do pay. How is saying people go to the emergency room and they have to be treated part of the solution to the problem? It is the problem. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, they're not going to deny you care on the spot, but you have to pay for it in the end. And 62 percent of personal bankruptcies in the United States come from medical expenses. That's a problem that really doesn't exist in other countries. Correct. And so if you have to make the decision between paying for your own medical care and being able to leave some money for your family and not burden your family, you may choose the latter. A 2009 study by the Institute of Medicine found that uninsured Americans are more likely to die if diagnosed with a number of illnesses, including but not limited to cancer, congestive heart failure, diabetes, heart attack, etc. Also, people without insurance are more likely to be diagnosed with a more advanced stage of cancer because they understandably have not been keeping up with primary care all along. Uh, The list goes on and on and on. A study from the same year, 2009, published by the American Journal of Public Health, found that about 45,000 deaths every year in the United States are linked to lack of health coverage and that working age Americans without health insurance have a 40 percent higher death risk than those with private insurance. One of the study's co-authors, Steffi Woolhandler, a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and a primary care physician, noted that, quote, historically, every other developed nation has achieved universal health care through some form of nonprofit national health insurance. Our failure to do so means that all Americans pay higher health care costs and 45,000 pay with their lives. That means that we can say that at least around what, 20,000 Republican voters will die this year because they don't have health insurance, roughly half of that 45,000. Here's a 2015 study that examined health care in the U.S. versus health care in 12 other developed countries with universal health care or governments that ensure basic provisions of uh, the basic provision of health services. Not only do all these other countries each spend far less on health care, they have better health outcomes and longer life expectancy. The U.S. has almost double the average infant mortality rate of all these countries, and the U.S. has the highest mortality rates among people with diseases like heart disease and diabetes. Nobody dies because they don't have access to health care. Congressman Labrador said it's not only flat wrong, it seems to be the position that Republicans are taking when they make health care policy, and it is flat out immoral, never mind being completely incorrect. Um, uh, Again, Labrador responded by saying, quote, I was trying to explain that all hospitals are required by law to treat patients in need of emergency care, regardless of their ability to pay, and the Republican plan doesn't change that. Right. Labrador.house.gov. It very clearly lists Congressman Labrador's contact info.
This is from Consumer Reports um, yesterday, I think. Uh, as legislators and executive branch uh, renew their efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act this week, they might want to keep in mind a little-known financial consequence of the Affordable Care Act. Since its adoption, far fewer Americans have taken the extreme step of filing for personal bankruptcy. And when they say far fewer, they mean really far fewer. Filings have dropped about 50 percent from about 1.5 million back in 2010 to about seven and a half, uh, 770,000 in 2016. Those years represent the time frame when the ACA took effect. Although courts do not ask people to declare why they are filing for bankruptcy, many bankruptcy and legal experts agree that medical bills had been a leading cause of personal bankruptcy before public health care coverage was expanded under Obamacare. Unlike other causes of debt, they write medical bills are often unexpected, involuntary and very large. Lois Lupica, a bankruptcy expert at the Maine Law Foundation, said if you're uninsured or underinsured, you can run up a huge debt in a short period of time. So did the Affordable Care Act, which helped some 20 million Americans get health insurance, cause the decline in bankruptcies? Consumer Reports says that uh, many experts that they interviewed also pointed to other two other contributing factors an improving economy and changes to bankruptcy laws back in 2005 that made it more difficult and costly to file for bankruptcy. However, they almost all agreed that expanded health coverage played a major role in the marked recent decline in bankruptcy. Some of the most important financial protections of the Affordable Care Act apply to all consumers, whether they get their coverage through the Affordable Care Act exchanges or not. These provisions include mandated coverage for pre-existing conditions and on most benefits uh, and on most covered benefits, an end to annual and lifetime coverage caps, which, in fact, they uh, they say led to this steady decline in bankruptcy. And if you look at their they include a chart here, you see the steady rise of bankruptcy, uh, bankruptcy filings until 2010 when the Affordable Care Act is signed into law and then Boom. They just the the numbers just go straight down all the way uh, until uh, 2016, which is the latest numbers that they have. So that you would think would be a good thing that Republicans would want to continue. But apparently they don't. Common sense. Teach me everything I need to know. What's worth fighting for? What I need to just let go. Common sense, teach me what it means to be alive. What's make for this time, time, time. If you're looking to hire, then you should know that you can't just post an opening in one place and expect to find a good selection of candidates. With ZipRecruiter, though, you can post your job opening to over a hundred job sites plus social media networks 
with a single click and find candidates in any city or industry nationwide. Just post once and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface, no juggling emails or calls to your office. Plus, if you're feeling proactive, they already have 9 million resumes you can search through in their database. To make it even easier, you can add multiple people to your account so it's more efficient for your team to find the best hire together. And if you have any questions about writing your post or anything else, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Common sense, make me want to be a Common sense, make it easier to understand. Meanwhile, a lot more people are going to see this clip. And saw it live, I bet, or live to tape. Jimmy Kimmel apparently just had a son. And his son, within an hour or so of being born, they realized that the son had some type of congenital heart defect. And they actually performed, I think, within an hour or day of his birth, like a, some type of like what appeared to be like open heart surgery. And the kid's doing well. Um, Kimmel uh, tells the story, which I can only imagine how difficult that is to sort of just even talk about him. And I was breaking up on that story that Arthur Bryant told us the other day. But to his credit, really, I mean, I, I was very impressed by this. But to his credit, at a time where he knows there's a debate about this, he remembers that he has a tremendous amount of privilege in going to one of the top, having access to one of the top medical facilities in the country and the ability to pay for it is not even an issue. And he basically uses this opportunity to remind people of, 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 of that fact. We were brought up to believe that we live in the greatest country in the world. But in, until what, a few years ago, millions and millions of us had no access to health insurance at all. You know, before 2014, if you were born with congenital heart disease like my son was, there was a good chance you'd never be able to get health insurance because you had a pre-existing condition. You were born with a pre-existing condition. And if your parents didn't have medical insurance, you might not live long enough to even get denied because of a pre-existing condition. If your baby is going to die and it doesn't have to, it, it shouldn't matter how much money you make. I think that's something that whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or something else, we all agree on that, right? I mean, we do. We need to make sure that the people who are supposed to represent us, the people who are meeting about this right now in Washington, understand that very clearly. Let's stop with the nonsense. This isn't football. There are no teams. We are the team. It's the United States. Don't let their partisan squabbles divide us on something every decent person wants. We need to take care of each other. I saw a lot of families there, and... 
no parent should ever have to decide if they can afford to save their child's life. It, it just shouldn't happen. Not here. So, uh, anyway, thank you for listening. I promise I'm not going to cry for the rest of the show. So, I mean, I, I, I you know, I want to uh, uh, applaud him, and I don't want to make this about the, the my one criticism uh, about him, because I think that in the context of where he's at and his platform, him presenting it that way, and it was obviously very heartfelt. I mean, he's not sitting down and going like, I sort of want to politicize this a little bit. Um, but the reality is, and I don't know whose failure this is on some level, right? I mean, uh, but the reality is that they don't agree, that we don't all agree on this. If we all agreed on this, there would not have been 50-some-odd votes to repeal Obamacare. There would have been 50 votes to attempt to enhance Obamacare, to make it better. We don't all agree on this. In fact, every time they talk about healthy people should not have to subsidize sick people, Every time Paul Ryan brings that out, that is exactly what he's saying. He's saying, we don't all agree on this. And a big part of the problem with our politics today, and has always been, I mean, for, for an extended period of time, there's this notion that we're just arguing about how we want to go about it. And this is all right. just simple, you know, football game stuff. I want to do it this way. We want to do it this way. Whenever you hear the construction, we all agree on the problem. We're just arguing about the solution. You have to make sure that you correct that person. Because in the abstract, Paul Ryan may say, like, I want everybody to have health insurance and have health care and be healthy. That's fine. In Tinkerbell world, there's no disagreement. But the reality is, is that, no, Paul Ryan does not feel it's compelling enough to make sure that people have health insurance when they're born. All people does not find it compelling enough for government to spend a dime on it. Period. End of story. It's not a question of how to achieve that via government. He does not believe it's government's role to do that. And remember, he's considered to be a rhino, not extreme enough. That's very important for people to understand. Because that is the reality. I mean, should Jimmy Kimmel not be putting it that way? I think it's probably helpful for him to put it that way because it makes it seem more, even more grotesque. But there's people should understand that the reality is we don't all agree on it. That's actually what the fight's about. It is a second order discussion as to what's the best way to achieve that via one government program or another. But they don't believe it's government's business to be doing it. They don't believe it is our problem. They don't believe we should be involved in it. 
there's a distinction between the people and the party, right? Because Trump made a headline saying we're not going to let anyone die on the streets because he knew that would be more popular generally with even Republicans than, or at least, I mean, there's a reason he did that, right? I mean, I think they, there is, is there a part of, are there Republican voters who don't want to, who, who like that sentiment? Of course, in the same way that like, we're not going to let anybody die. We're, that's not what America is. But wait a second. Oh, uh, you're going to have to raise my taxes on that? Oh. Yeah, that's also not what America is. I mean, I think the the sentiment... Look, Paul Ryan's never going to come out and say, we're going to let people die. I mean, he's not, he's not Ron Paul. Ron Paul did. Paul Ryan's belief system is not different from uh, Ron Paul's. He just knows... You know, that uh, we're just going to create something that is going to save us tax dollars and will not suffice. There's no way in the world Paul Ryan believes that risk pools are up to the task. You can dissuade yourself of that belief by reading five minutes into the existing evidence of what risk pools, what they have been able to accomplish. There's just no way. If you can tie your shoes... You can figure this out, that that's not going to suffice. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism use all the resistance tools to fight Trump care. They haven't repealed Obamacare, not yet anyway, and their horrifying bill that panders to the extreme Tea Partiers is receiving a cold shoulder in the Senate. But now, behind closed doors, 13 old white men in the Senate are working on their own version of a health care bill, and we can't imagine it's going to be much better. The forthcoming congressional ping-pong that holds the future of Americans' health care in the balance could go on for a while, but we need to be holding our elected officials accountable and making our voices heard every step of the way. In light of the passage of Trump care in the House, the activism ground has been shifting. The folks over at Indivisible Guide have overhauled their online resources with a focus on Trump care. The new resources include links to a die-in planning guide, call scripts to hold your representatives and senators accountable, talking points factually refuting Republican talking points, a list of the top 10 worst things about Trump care, and more. Head over to IndivisibleGuide.com, click the Resources tab, and select Stop Trump Care in the dropdown. If you live in a district of one of the 217 representatives that voted for this cartoon villain-esque bill, you may also want to check out PaybackProject.org, a partnership of Indivisible, MoveOn.org, Town Hall Project, and Women's March. Payback Project is tracking and amplifying local groups and events that are targeting the 217 members of Congress who voted for the AHCA. This is the beginning of efforts to oust these politicians in 2018. Go to paybackproject.org to find an event, submit an event, sign up for updates, check out local stories on the accountability wall, and submit your own. You can also tag your local activism photos, videos, and stories with the hashtag PaybackProject on Twitter and Facebook to be amplified.
The tools, resources, and organizations of the resistance exist to help you be an extremely squeaky wheel because that's what works. So make it a habit to call and write your members of Congress, send faxes and letters with resistbot.io, leave voicemails for your reps and senators with our favorite contact app, Stance, which you can find at takeastance.us. Take the time to write a letter to the editor of your local paper, and remember, even if Trump was impeached tomorrow, we would still need to fight for affordable access to healthcare and every other progressive value. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if making sure all Americans have access to affordable healthcare is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about all of the resistance tools available to fight Trump care via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed? Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now. That's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. What I wish people on the other end of the religious and political perspective could understand is that compassion works better. We choose compassion out of our spiritual tradition, but if you look at it just straight up economically, compassion works better over the long haul. As we were saying in class, if you're a farmer and you've made your fall harvest and you want to increase your bottom line, you can sell your topsoil. But that's not a good long-range plan. And unfortunately, a lot of what we're doing in corporate America is selling our topsoil. If we are concerned about nutrition, health care, education, and employment of the poor, that's not just a Jesus solution. That's an Adam Smith wealth of nations solution. Republicans and Democrats don't have to be at loggerheads about universal health care, about free college education, about replacing the minimum wage with a living wage. If only we could get Democrats to understand that we want to grow the economy. We don't want to just give away enough public assistance to keep people from dying, but that we want to actually get them producing in the economy. And if we can get Republicans to realize that short-term economic goals work against their best long-term interest. Democrats need to stop thinking about food stamps and public housing and start thinking about free college education and better salaries. And Republicans need to stop thinking about exporting labor and building more prisons and get behind policies that will actually rise, lift all boats. Amen. Let me give you just one example from before Republicans and Democrats were a thing. When Adam Smith left Scotland and came to see the newly birthed democracy in America, he wrote about how our freedom of movement and labor was going to make us rich. That the ability of laborers to move from place to place and job to job <coughs> would stimulate our economic growth so that we would surpass the uh, Great Britain and Europe. Because there, labor was too tightly controlled through apprenticeships and trade unions. 
In the newly formed USA, laborers could freely move from place to place, from trade to trade, based on their skill, based on the demand of the market, based on their talent and desire. This is obviously much better for the for the standard of living of the laborer and for the production of wealth on a national scale. But 200 years after Adam Smith published this praise of American labor freedom, we accidentally killed the goose that lays the golden egg by tying health care to employment. Health insurance, which is crucial to modern life, became so expensive that a person couldn't leave a dead-end job. They, they no longer had labor mobility. They could no longer change their industry or their employment. They couldn't quit to start a new business. They couldn't become an inventor. They couldn't even take a break from their employment in order to earn an advanced degree or take new job training. What the old apprenticeship and trade unions did to impede the circulation of labor was nothing compared to the prison that is health insurance from your employer tying us to a job. Now, there were a number of reasons that America became a world-dominating economic force, but chief among those reasons was a workforce that was free to move, to innovate, invent, and to change based on opportunity. You think of the products that define what it is to be modern life and say, where was that invented and developed? And the list that falls under America is huge compared to the rest of the world added together because we were the place where innovation and invention was encouraged and rewarded. We are not that place anymore. Take that away, and our economy slows to nearly imperceptible growth. And for the truly market-driven among us, if a national health care program were enacted tomorrow, by the end of the day, the markets would close with stocks having gone through the roof for corporations like the automobile and high-tech industries. The most expensive thing on any new car, any new refrigerator, any new air conditioner today is the health care cost of their retired workforce. If you remove that one thing, American products immediately become more affordable on the world market. Remember when Detroit was considered to be the city of the future and cities all over the world were coming to Detroit to, to want to be more like them? That could happen again. And the one factor that could make it happen is universal health care. If only we could see past the end of our own noses. Now, I'm no diplomat. You probably knew that. <clears throat> and I have no desire to disguise the thousands of pages of liberal ire that I currently have posted on the Internet. But I'm saying that the facts are not partisan. And capitalism doesn't have to be the same thing as economic cannibalism. There's a way that America became greater than its peers among the nations of the world, and we have, out of greed and moral laziness, surrendered much of that progress in the interest of having a fatter bottom line next month than having a better bottom line five years from now. I think that we religious bleeding-heart liberals need to find a way to work with self-serving conservatives to make America great again if we can only get the 1% to agree that even they could be more wealthy if the 99% had an improved standard of living.
At a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. If we want to start talking about healthcare reform, allow me to throw in a few thoughts if you would. The first one is, all ideology aside, if I sit you down in a room and we'll just say that you're an efficiency expert, you're an efficient person, I can give you a household budget and you can go through it and figure out how to turn, you know, something that's in the red, in the black, cut here, get a better deal on that there, you know, all these kinds of things, right? You're an efficiency expert, and I'm going to sit you down, and I'm going to throw some cold, hard facts at you, and I want you to draw some conclusions, if you can, from these facts. Now, understand, numbers like the kind of things I'm going to throw at you now, especially comparing over country to country, there are variables involved. Different peoples are different. They eat different foods. They do different things. You know, lifestyles are different, so there's variables. You have to understand that that's why close comparisons are difficult. But when comparisons are hugely one-sided, you can throw the variables out the window and you can draw some conclusions. So if you wanted to compare the U.S. system, and, and there's a number of countries that are considered to be comparative, you know, c- comparison-worthy with the United States system. So I went online and looked at a bunch of different sites you know, that were comparing and contrasting There are some good, highly sourced numbers from a bunch of these places, but start with like the Commonwealth Fund, which is a group that promotes, you know, healthcare. So, I mean, they have an interest in pointing out the problems in the system, but the studies are well-sourced and all that kind of stuff. And and they're sobering. If you haven't looked at the healthcare numbers for the U.S. compared to other countries, you ought to do that before you even discuss the issue because somehow that needs to be explained away, dealt with. You can't sweep this under the rug. Start with a few facts. The first fact is is sobering in and of itself. And I took this quote directly from the website because, you know, the U.S. compared to the other countries in our category is the only one without, you know, a government health care system, right? So theoretically, they should all be spending a lot more of, of public funds on health care because, you know, we do it privately more than they do, right? Here's a quote, though, from the website. Quote, even though the U.S. is the only country on the list without a publicly financed universal health system, it still spends more public dollars on health care than all but two of the other countries on the list. That's stunning, right? In other words, only two of these countries, all of the government health care countries, spend more public money, public money on health care than we do, and we don't have a government health care system. 
not a universal one. We obviously have a patchwork of things, Medicare, Medicaid, all those kinds of things. There are other countries, by the way, that are considered to be comparable to the U.S. for the purposes of this intro conversation. Australia, Canada, Denmark, France, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. Okay? In the year 2013, which was obviously before... Um, the Affordable Care Act took effect. And even now, the numbers, you don't have enough numbers on it over time to to get good looks at, at what it's changed. But it hasn't changed the basics, I think. And I mean, coverage numbers will be different and that will lead to other realities. But But these broad numbers are probably still pretty accurate. In 2013, the U.S. spent a bit more than 17% of GDP on health care. 17%. And of course, that means nothing unless you know what other countries spend, right? How does that stack up with the other nations on our comparison list, right? Well, 17% of GDP is number one on the list. USA, 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 right? Number two on the list was France at 11.6% of GDP, right? 50% lower. So the distance, like I said, variables sometimes can come into play, but when you're 50% higher than the next competitor, the variables just fall away. Something's wrong with that number, right? France spends 11.6% of GDP on healthcare. The UK spends 8 point, this is 2013 numbers, 8.8% of GDP. Folks, that's half. That's half what the US spends. If I'm sitting you down with a piece of paper and I'm going to th throw a bunch of numbers at you and ask you to draw some conclusions, the first one is that. What do you make of that number? Now, add to that what Americans privately pay for health care, right? The insurance premiums that come out of your pocket, that's all part of the overall health care cost, right? It's not a government expense. It's a you expense. Out-of-pocket stuff, co-payments, all that stuff, right? How do we stack up? Well, you know it's not going to be good because we're the only one on the list without a universal health care thing as part of their system. But, you know, let's see what the numbers look like. The U.S. towers over the, the number two competitor in this category as well. Canada, by the way, is the number two with the highest insurance premiums, out-of-pocket expenses, co-payments, and all that stuff. But Americans spend five times more than our friends north of the border. So we in the U.S. spend five times what the number two country on the list spends. Again, the variables that you could say, well, Americans do more of this or less of that, doesn't come into play when it's that big. Again, if, if you're just working on a few numbers that I give you, that's the second one. What do you make of that? So what are we getting for our money? That's a good question, isn't it? You go and you look at the list, and of course, the healthcare professionals all have a bunch of different stats that they use as part of an overall panel of assessment to determine how a country's doing. And it's the standard stuff we see everywhere uh, infant mortality, life expectancy, you know, and whatnot, right? And on that list, we don't do very well either. So these countries that are spending dramatically less are scoring higher than the U.S. in most categories. In some categories, they are running away with it compared to the U.S. The U.S. does pretty well on cancer care, though. Let's point out where things are good. These, of course, as I said, are 2013 numbers I'm using. 
Um, newer numbers are going to be slightly different. But the point overall is that if you're going to spend that much more money, one would hope for a corresponding rise in what you're getting for the cash, right? But if you are spending so much more than your competitors and they're actually delivering more in results, again, you're the efficiency expert with the piece of paper and I just give you a few numbers to work with. Plug that into your equation and how does that mess with your thinking, right? So you might say, well, wait a minute. All right, well, what's different? Start looking at specifics, right? If we got these different cost disparities, what's going on, right? So the first thing you may look at is, all right, well, let's look at the stuff that this money buys and let's look at what we pay for it versus what these other countries pay for it. And this turns out to be rather interesting. Take, for example, heart bypass surgery. Just an example to show the rule that procedures are a lot more expensive in the U.S. than in any of the other countries on that list. And again, allowing for variables is fine, but 40% higher in terms of the cost of the surgery than the number two country on the list. So the U.S. is exceeding the next highest competitor by a ton in all these categories. Uh, average cost in 2013 of heart bypass surgery was listed as $75,345. The second highest on the list was Australia, where it was $42,130. Boom. Okay. There's a prime suspect, right? Procedures are more expensive in the U.S. Okay, we'll put that aside now. What else? Well, didn't turn out to be visits to the doctor because these other countries generally had their people going to the doctor more for checkups and routine visits and what have you. Uh, U.S. folk in general saw the doctor quite a bit less, so it's not going to doctor visits. It also is not because Americans get hospitalized more and that costs more because the Europeans were actually going in the hospital more, maybe having procedures done or whatever. And by the way, I should point out, because I can hear the Europeans grumbling in my ear from here, that if you go to any of these countries on the list I just mentioned and start talking about the government healthcare system, you're going to hear gripes because that's human. Took me four months and then they did this. And, and, you know, I mean, you hear it anywhere in the world, everywhere in the world. Okay. From most people, not all people, but most people. The problem is, is if you want for comparison purposes, offer them a trade. Go to any of these countries after you hear how long it took to get that knee replacement surgery done and say, well, listen, want to trade with us? I've never met a person who didn't say, oh, no, no, I'll stay with what we have. I want it to be better, but I'll stay with what we have. In other words, they're cool. They like it pretty well. As I've said many times, I'm fine replacing the Affordable Care Act with something better. But it's got to be better. And not better for the stakeholders in the uh, entire healthcare industry, because the only stakeholders that should matter, and I'm going to repeat this because I feel this way in a number of different areas, it's a huge problem. The only stakeholders that should matter are the end users, the people, you know, from whence all the money to pay for all of this, you know, ostensibly comes from the taxpayers, right? Not better for all the people in the supply chain so that they can make a profit. And I think the profit motive is wonderful in some areas. For example, I've been convinced for many years that the United States' ability and pharmaceutical companies' ability in this country to develop new drugs is wonderful, and it is in large part, you know, fueled by the carrot and sticks of the free market, right? 
it's a high risk, high reward gig, but it distorts the market somewhat because you have to say, okay, listen, if you, if you make this wonder drug, we're going to make sure only you can make it for a while after you initially make it to protect the investment you put in. Okay, but I get that. And I think in the end somewhere, we're better off for it. But so much of the rest of the healthcare market does not follow the typical you know, free market dynamics that are so often cited. Oh, we'll get a competition going in the States and blah, blah, blah. Folks, it's not breakfast cereal. It's not breakfast cereal. And that, that's the problem, okay? Because unlike most goods and services out there, you do not, and, and most people would simply not be willing to go, for example, for the cut-rate doctor. This guy is, or gal is definitely not as good as the competition, but he's 50% cheaper, so that's who we're going with. Not in that free market. Not if you can help it. Not if you can sell the house and the farm and everything else. You're not letting that person operate on your child. You'll give your whole life up and live as a pauper rather than do that. It's not like, you know, I'll forego the breakfast cereal because it just is too expensive right now for Lucky Charms. You don't save up and cut coupons to get 20% off that doctor treatment. Don't wait for a sale on brain surgery. And it just doesn't work that way. It's a different kind of market. It's a life or death market, too. Because of that, trying to say you can fit all problems and solutions into the same template, for example, treating this market, the healthcare market, the same way you would treat a... Uh, commodity market it, it just it doesn't work that way and if it did wouldn't our numbers be lower because we're a heck of a lot more free market than these other countries you may say we're not very free market at all but we're a heck of a lot more free market than any of those other countries you know when it comes to their healthcare policies and the way that they deliver it and ironically as i said even with that we spend more in public money on healthcare than all but two of the countries on that list what the hell's going on and once again, I do not want to make these healthcare systems in these other countries out to be panaceas. I'm not saying they don't have problems. I'm not saying they don't make the news for cost overruns or scandals in this and that department and, and griping by the people who are the end users. I mean, I think it should be considered to be a fundamental thing that must be present for it to be considered officially a healthcare system that the end users gripe about its shortcomings. So I'm not trying to make these things out to be a panacea, just going on the measurables here. The reason Americans have been told that they shouldn't go the route of these other countries is because it's going to cost a lot more and or you're going to have a worse end user experience and the raw numbers don't seem to show that at all. And I don't think anybody would trade their system for ours. So we'll draw the conclusions we can from that. Forget fake news, alternative facts, anything like that. Draw your conclusion from basically that. We just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, laying out the basic details of the health care bill so far. Trumpcast focused in on the effect of Trump care on pre-existing conditions. The Young Turks focused on Trump care's attacks on women. The David Pakman Show explained why depending on emergency room care isn't part of the solution, it's part of the problem. The Bradcast highlighted the beneficial effects of the Affordable Care Act on personal bankruptcies in America. The Majority Report commented on Jimmy Kimmel's monologue and the fact that many Republicans simply disagree that they have any role to play in providing health care. 
Our activism for today is in support of the Indivisible Guide and the Payback Project in opposition to Trump Care. A portion of a progressive faith sermon from Reverend Roger Ray focused on the nuts and bolts benefits of universal health care. And finally, we just heard Dan Carlin on Common Sense compare our country's health care system with those of similar nations. You can find links in each of these segments for the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear very briefly from just one of you. Hey, Jay. It's David again, South Carolina. I appreciate you putting me on the show. And, uh, Actually, I was uh, responding back a couple uh, of days ago. You had a guy on who actually, I think, kind of got what I was trying to go for a little bit better than I probably said it myself. But yeah, I wasn't talking about the, when I mentioned uh, healthcare being equivalent to slavery, I wasn't, I wasn't saying that it was equivalent to American slavery. That was a particularly brilliant and uh, disgusting racist version of it. I, I meant in terms of principle that trying to get a doctor or to make a doctor treat you, whether they desire it or not, would be equivalent to demanding from them their labor. Okay, let's stop right there. For anyone who didn't hear or doesn't recall, David called in last month asking the same basic question, why making healthcare a human right wouldn't turn doctors into slaves of patients who could then demand care under this new oppressive regime of healthcare as a human right. To briefly recap, part of my original response was that using the word slavery is an intentionally inflammatory and propagandistic term used by powerful interests who want to scare people away from undermining the existing and very profitable healthcare system we have today. So David, it sounds like you want to have a genuine conversation, and if that's the case, here's my advice. Stop referring to slavery because people will either not take you seriously, misunderstand you wildly, or a combination of all of these, uh, the third being getting really, really pissed off at you. That is no way to start a conversation. So if when you said slavery, you didn't really mean slavery, you meant slavery light, then A, you should have said that, and B, you should really come up with a more precise way of saying what you're trying to say. Secondly, I already explained my perspective on why healthcare being a human right does not equate to any degree of slavery light or anything like that because doctors choose their profession, can choose to leave their profession, can make themselves available only during certain hours, and are compensated for all of their labor. So here's where I think we should go from here. Universal healthcare systems are not a theoretical idea. A couple dozen of them already exist in various forms all around the world. I think the onus is now on you to go find examples of any doctors anywhere in the world working under one of these universal healthcare systems being conscripted to serve a patient that they don't want to serve, and then we'll have a discussion about that case. Right now, you're just having a thought experiment with no basis in reality, and we're trying to have a discussion about policy. And thought experiments with no basis in reality is a really bad thing to base policy on. So let's move on to the more important issue. The debate over healthcare being a human right is an absolute and complete distraction. Uh, I've never really bothered focusing on it too much. I, I find the idea that healthcare is a human right is, is just sort of a no-brainer concept that I can agree to and move on. But it's just this ethereal concept with not much real-world application. And the only reason that we would need to argue 
that healthcare is a human right is if a universal healthcare system had major trade-offs, you know, like, well, it's more expensive, but it's worth it because it's a human right. Or, well, health outcomes across the board are worse, but that's offset by the fact that everyone's being covered because it's a human right. It's an okay trade-off. But here's the thing. Universal coverage is cheaper, has better outcomes across the board, includes everyone so the poor aren't discriminated against, and people will get more preventative treatment, which is cheaper and improves public health. It unburdens businesses from the hassle of providing employee health insurance. It decouples healthcare from your job so that you as an individual have the greater freedom to move and change jobs and more opportunity for entrepreneurialism. And it reduces the number of personal bankruptcies dramatically. And beyond that, there's just the overall peace of mind that it would create with untold positive ramifications in people's lives. And there's probably more that I'm forgetting. So there is no need to make a moral argument for healthcare to be a human right to people who flatly disagree with that idea. The facts are with us, and the onus is on them to explain why a system that is better in every way shouldn't be implemented. Make them explain why their ideology is worth more than all of those data points. Well, it's more expensive, but it's worth it because it's not a human right. We have to restrict people. And yes, overall health comes are worse, but that's offset by the fact that not everyone's covered because it's not a right. And those poor outcomes are mostly concentrated in poor people who don't deserve to be healthy anyway. And sure, fewer people get preventative treatment and then rack up huge bills at emergency rooms, but I'm willing to pay that extra cost to ensure that no one has the wrong philosophy about whether healthcare is a right or not. So go ahead, make your argument, and I'll make mine, and we'll see if people care more about purely hypothetical thought experiments and philosophical debates about rights or if they just want some peace of mind and the assurance that they're not going to go bankrupt if they're badly sick or injured. As always, keep the comments coming in. The number to dial 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. See past our own sad stories and wonder